everyone and welcome to Cancre, your home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. Mm-hmm. We, did, we did Eurovision last week and yes, we, uh, we watched Eurovision. My brother, who hates Eurovision, heard our episode and started texting me because specifically, uh, remember how I kept pushing, we should play Ukraine, we should play Ukraine or Ukraine. And you're like, okay, weird, but yeah, sure. Uh, it was that one. He was like, if Eurovision sounds like that, I may actually start listening because it was weird, but like good weird. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Ukraine were fantastic. Absolutely. Yes. Well, this week we are stepping back into our role as promoting Canadian queer content. Yes. So our songs this week, we have four of them. They are all Canadian queer musicians. Um, lots of great new tracks. I had a I had a nap earlier today as as a millennial, and uh, I was thinking in my nap about uh, the many, many, many different ways that people identify as this and that and the other. And I, I was kind of possibly influenced by the TV children's TV show, Blue's Clues. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with Blue's Clues? Blue the dog? It's a, there's a lot. Of- everyone knows Blue's Clues. Yeah. So Blue's Clues, the, the newest version, which is on Nickelodeon, uh, teamed up with the quite famous Nina West. Nina West has this very family-friendly persona. Mm. She is the epitome of, like, PG-13 drag queen. It is, it, it is definitely a, a look she goes for. So I Nina West is... That was PG. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Nina West is uh, animated and she is, uh, she's got a mic and she's singing a song about the Pride Parade. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to play a little clip from Blue's Clues about the Pride Parade. Here we go. Hey, Blue, look at all these families. Hi, families. It's time for a Pride Parade. Families marching one by one. Hurrah, hurrah. Families marching one by one. Hurrah. This family has two mommies, they love each other so proudly, and they all go marching in the big parade. Families marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Families marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. This family has two daddies, they love each other so proudly, and they all go marching in the big parade. Come on, friends! Families marching three so by three. So the reaction hurrah, to this hurrah, has been pretty mostly, you know, quite positive. People saying, you know, people, you know, children are seeing these parades. Mm. Children are, especially with over a hundred parades across Canada outside of the pandemic. You know, in in nearly every town and 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 large village, uh, and definitely in every city, there is going to be a pride parade. So pride parades have now more than ever before become a somewhat commonplace event in children's lives, especially, especially in the in summer, Canada. especially in Canada. Yeah. So having this children's song being like, look, here come some people and look, here come some people. And this is what that's about. And, and not diving into what is the definition of pan, just yeah. saying, you know, here is a pan couple. They're having a good time. And then moving on, because a child doesn't need to know the ins and outs and the who's and the what's. They just need to know they're there and they're having a good time. And I think that's fine. I would actually, okay. Okay. 
So I have very mixed feelings about, because we've discussed this in the past, but I have very mixed feelings about the alphabet in general. Uh, like our own friend Heather has pointed out to us that the difference between a bisexual, a pansexual, and an omnisexual only matters to pansexuals. Because to everybody else, they're like, yeah, there's a difference, but eh, shrug emoji, right? And if you have a room full of bisexuals, pansexuals, and omnisexuals, the difference to them matters. But to everybody else, all we need to know is that some people are into, you know, two or more things. And that's really all we need to know. Oh, and if you're ace, you're into not particularly into the things. Yeah. You know, not particularly into much of anything, at least not in that way. And I think the, the main thing, I would reverse it and say, like, I don't think kids need to know words like, you know, pansexual or asexual. I think they just need to know about fuzzy borders. You know, mm. sometimes men also like men. Sometimes they don't. Bing. So, like, that's the, 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 the concept of, you know, fuzzy edges and blurry borders and whatever you're used to. There's going to be somebody out there who does something different. I think that general concept is a lot more useful. And like in general, like people understand the concept of blurry borders. Like one of my favorite examples of this, okay, in Welsh, all right, oh, there's a specific shade of color where the name for that means both green and gray, depending on the context. And some people are go, why would you have a word for green and gray that's the same, right? But in English, we do the same thing with the word purple. So pink, purple, blue, purple, brown, purple, like uh, there's all kinds of different words, uh, colors that are completely unrelated, but we call them purple. So we have one word that kind of means a whole bunch of different things. And you just sort of accept it. You say purple and you go, oh, I interpreted that as pink. Maybe somebody's colorblind. Maybe somebody went to art school and they have a very narrow definition. We just sort of know that words are inaccurate and that's just part of being a human. Right. Yeah. I am going to call you out on that because it didn't strike me as true. And I quickly Googled it and it's it's not true. Uh -huh. uh, green is Gwyrdd yeah. and uh, grey is Hoid. Uh, and, and I think that Hoid is often referred to as money. Okay. So gold is Ariane, for example, which is money. Okay. Um, and that just comes to the fact that gold, with the color and gold, the coinage is the same thing. Okay. But green and grey are different words. <laughs> I mean, Okay. I mean, so we have different words for light red and, and dark red, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. a lot of people, like pink is just a separate word for light red. Just like a lot of Eastern European languages have separate words for light and dark blue. And to us, it's like, why? It's just blue. But no, no, like light blue and dark blue are different in their minds because they cut the pie differently. And I want to really, bring it back to the alphabet for a no, second. No, I know, but I, I'm using the color wheel just as an example. But like where we place the borders on these things is arbitrary. You know, where, where does yellow end and orange begin? It depends mm. on where you grew up. It depends on your understanding of the world. The same thing with, uh, you know, sexual identity and gender identity. And really all you need to know is that the edges are blurry. Any word you come up with is going to be arbitrary. And there's kind of two ways of approaching this. You can explode the alphabet infinitely, which we do with, you know, you have your Pantone colors, right? But then mm. you can also just say, eh, red, blue, orange, green, yellow, pink. Exactly. Dark, right? So you, you have these sort of two different camps sort of in the community where we can't even agree with each other. Because you have some people who are just like, 
have the fewest number of words and just understand that they have blurry borders and whatever word you use, it's inaccurate just by nature of it's a word. And then you have other people like, no, we need a Pantone alphabet for every single gender and sexual identity. I don't think either one is necessarily more right than the other. I think it depends well, on the context. You know what jumped out to me? And, and this is why I wanted to bring this up in conversation with you, uh, Seb, is because I think the LGBT alphabet yeah. has more to do with language and communication than anything else like yeah. if i said the gay community people know what that means yeah, yeah but if i said uh you know an asexual uh pan non-binary person uh you know you would know what that means yes yes I <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean and it's because it's it is using a a, a more uh, narrow descriptors sort of really zeroing in down the funnel mm-hmm. of what is very specific in that yeah um you know and the queer community has been finessing and and uh and, and sort of sculpting its its understanding of who we are individually mm-hmm. so that we can speak individually about a very specific desires or lack thereof our orientations, uh, you know, our, our identities, and, and able to speak a language where those who are similar can be like, yes, exactly, 100%. It's almost, it's a jargon almost, not to call queer identities a jargon, but I, in, in terms of speaking a specific language is, that is understood, it literally, it, it literally is a jargon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. a jargon has a very jargon? specific definition, yeah. Can you define it for the audience? Oh, uh, uh, a jargon is a technical language that people within a certain domain use to zero in on things that are specific to them. So a jargon, uh, the most common one is the the scientific community has its own way of speaking. But uh, Polari actually was a jargon as well. Uh, Polari being like this coded language uh, that especially gay men, but not uniquely gay men, as well as uh, some women and drug dealers and uh, uh, carny, traveling carnies knew. It was basically like the language of the cultural underground, basically. Mm. And it was In just, like the 20s, I think it was. Yeah, it was very big from around the mid-Victorian era to about the 50s. It had almost a century of life. And it, it was probably older as well, but within the gay community, it was about a century of life. So was, f- people might be familiar with the phrase, uh, he's light in his loafers, for example. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. That was uh, a Polari phrase. Uh, there's also a bunch of like backwards things. So ECAF meant face. Um, mm. NAF, which is not uh, radio friendly, but not available for something. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, your ugly stepsister is the police. <laughs> <laughs> they actually had about seven or eight different terms for the police, and you never use the same one twice in a row because in case there's eavesdroppers, which is mm. why they have this jargon. Whereas a lot of other people, they develop a jargon so that they can zero in on things that they care about deeply that most other people won't necessarily care about. So a lot of technical language is a jargon because if you're not a glass blower. You don't need to know the difference between all the different grades of sand. Like a punty or glory hole. We don't if, need to know what those are. If you are a glass blower, then those differences are incredibly important to you. I don't you know, know why I glass blower. Yeah. yeah, I know. I mean, for me, I just happen to know punty and gl- uh, um, 
uh, glory hall mm-hmm. for for reasons. But you know what jumps out at me is the queer community has a reputation, or individuals in the queer community have a reputation of uh, uh, of feeling attacked or attacking when their terminology is not used. Yeah, and I I wonder if we have to consider the accessibility of using jargon. Yeah. You know, if I say the gay community, the general public who is 90% straight, yes. Uh, or, you know, or, you know generally, or maybe 80 to 90% straight. Although there was a study in uh, the UK that has found the UK is the gayest ever been. Yeah. Like the, the highest percentage of people identifying as, uh, as, as not straight, you yeah. know, but my point is the general public, Joe Schmo listening to this on the radio, you know, they if they hear, oh, someone's gay, they get that. They understand yeah. it. They're like, okay, they're not straight. Yeah. Or if someone's trans, they get that. If they're non-binary, I think people are starting to understand non-binary a bit more in, in the sort of general public now. Mm-hmm. But if you get particularly more niche than that, if you start looking at more... Um, you know, the, the jargon, the terminology that's less widely understood, I feel like the accessibility of that language, your ability to effectively communicate with the broad public starts to get lost. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's sort of what I was thinking about in my nap. And I was like, oh, I should talk to Seb about that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Is, is queer jargon inaccessible? Some of it definitely is uh some of it is narrowing down on things that are very very specific and uh or making differences between things that if you don't necessarily care about that or if it doesn't apply to you it's kind of hard to feel and 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 perceive the difference between some of these things or it's like i mean again back to heather the conversation we have the difference between bisexual pansexual omnisexual and even she, who identifies as pansexual, sometimes omnisexual, but she tells people she's bisexual because people understand that. Uh, even she was like, "I don't care about the difference, whatever." <laughs> like it, it's. I am, I am going to quickly define the difference. People know bisexual, you know, attracted to men and women. Yeah. Uh, pansexual is you're attracted to people and not this construct of a of a gender of man or a gender of, of woman. You're attracted mm. to the person first and foremost. That's the really the only difference there is whether or not the the, the social construction of a gender plays a role. Mm. Um, it's seen as more trans-inclusive than pan versus bi. Yeah, and, and do you want to dive into omnisexual? Because it's not people who are into grass, you know, grass and meat eaters, is it? I don't, I don't know if I know the difference. Uh, to be honest, <laughs> we'll have to phone Heather and get. Yeah, we'd have to get Heather online. But even still, like there, there is this weird thing of like your average person is going to be like, so you're bisexual and not pansexual because you're attracted to the abstract social construct of gender like how does what like so i mean there there's stuff going on here where like if you're on the outside you're just looking at that like i don't know what that means but it's it's like it's it's just seen as more trans inclusive but yeah it's and also i think queer history plays a role you know in canada it was the you know the there was a homophile movement way at the start yeah, you know, and uh, you know, if you think of the in the U.S., they had the uh, the the remembering marches where people would politely walk along, being like, "Look, 
as homophiles are upstanding taxpaying citizens. Yep, yep. You know, we should be treated as such. And it was literally just gay men who are doctors, nurses, lawyers, and, and, and gay women. Um, but then, you know, things erupted from that. And it, it's, you know, when we saw the the in the impact of feminism on the queer community, we saw it go from GLBT to LGBT, which puts, uh, you know, lesbians first. And you saw the inclusion of T and sometimes the alphabet soup gets grew and grew and grew. And, and now TikTok refers to us as the alphabet mafia. That's, uh, that's sort of the common parlance on, on, on social media. Um, it well, used to be that calling yourself queer was like a subversive phrase. Yeah. Like I, it's, it's, it's underground. It's like, I'm not, I'm not the norm. I'm not, it's almost punk in a way. I mean, but it, now it queer is, punk scene. yeah, literally. Yeah. And you know, it was, but yeah. now it's also got like the academic connotations, you know, queer is in the non-normative study. And it's like, it, I feel like queer has been, sort of mainstreamed a little bit that that, that people know what it is yeah i do know punks who are angry at academics for taking away the uh, offensive part of the word queer the the punkishness of of it's meant to be offensive and you took that away from us you know the ivory tower ruins so much uh but going back to polari I mean, that's what gay was originally. Gay was just a Polari term. Gay was the 1950s, 60s version of the modern queer. Like gay was LGBTQ. It was basically you have straight and then you have gay. And Mm. it was just everything that isn't straight and some things that are, are gay. And it was just in Polari. It was a coded way, you know. I mean, what what was the thing that I said a couple weeks ago that you absolutely love? Like the, if we were to have a, oh, oh, uh, uh, what was it? Have you experienced rigmarole or have you experienced uh, oh malarkey lately malarkey. Yes. Have you experienced yeah malarkey? we're gonna get down a t-shirt and you've yeah, experienced yeah. malarkey lately and that that was that was my sort of modern version of that and gay was just you know are you gay like in the 50s people would be like weird phrasing but yeah, okay whatever and you just gauge somebody's reaction if they said they were then you would go on and try to determine what subcategory they were and that was fine you know and because it was polari gay could just also mean yeah i sell heroin like it was it was a coded term it meant everything so and that's that's where we are now where you know the well i mean there's also a history that how all the different identities split off from gay and yeah men were the only ones left over so now gay means men but like i think it's worth the last thing i want to mention on the on the canadian context is yeah. in canada it's often lgbtq2 lgbtq2 plus yeah and that is because in Canada, we had a, you know, a, a reconciling the, the queer community date about a decade ago mm. with the fact that uh, two-spirited Indigenous folks, the, the identities which weren't invented in San Francisco or London or New York, mm. the identities which are distinct in origin to, uh, to folks who are Indigenous were omitted were in, in the Canadian context, like they weren't there. So, you know, it's so it's you know generally referred to as being too spirited, although there are you know a hundred nations and the identity differs from one to the next. Yeah. That's the sort of common parlance that is understood to be, you know, a, a, an identity that's distinct to indigenous folks. So yeah. I, I wanted to mention that that you know, we talked about the impact of feminism, yeah. and I wanted to not as not miss the impact of uh indi- indigeneity. On, on the Canadian uh, queer identity as well. So yeah, we do see folks 
capturing that too. You can often find, uh, you can also often spot an American story when it's completely missing. So, yes. <laughs> they, they haven't had that conversation with themselves yet. And, and, and now that we have so many um, uh, people with refugee status in Canada, you have a lot of people coming here saying like, I don't identify as gay, but I acknowledge that I am a homosexual because they come from another part of the world where they don't have that history. So you have people saying, well, let's move away from that language altogether. And you have like Sogi, sexual orientation, gender identity, minority. And then you have uh, GSM, gender and sexual minorities. Yeah. Yes. So that is basically like everything falls under that umbrella. Nothing yeah. Sogi is, is, I think, the UN's umbrella term. And yeah. GSM is, is often government. I think BC uses GSM. So, yeah. Soki, I've seen uh, activists in East Africa. I think it was Eritrea uh, where I mm. saw that. There were Eritreans a- activists using Soki as a term. And it's S O G G I. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just for people like Soki. How, yeah. how do you identify as a Soki? No, no, it's S O G I. Yeah. It's yeah for them, it's a political term. It's not an individual identity, it, it, it's a demography. It's not. Yeah a person. You don't identify as being a Sogi. You identify as being somebody who is within the group of Sogi. So, like millennial. Although yeah. for some people, some millennial people is an identity. identity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, let's <laughs> jump to our first track. This is by Nimkish. This is YSB featuring uh, Accension. Uh, and we'll be back just after this. Are you listening? Do you hear me? Am I screaming out in Sick, broke, yeah, I need it. 
Hello and welcome back to Cancre, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Nick Smith. And I'm Sebastian. Now, one of the stories I wanted to touch on is a story that I found um, about 100 Gay Men for a Cause Vancouver. Um, This is is an idea that didn't originate with these gay men in Vancouver, but rather um, it's, it's, I think it uh, originates with from uh, 100 Women Who Care, and there is an organization called uh, 100 Who Care Alliance, where you can start up uh, local giving circles or, or, or chapters. Um, essentially, this 100 gay men, I don't know if it's 100, I believe it's 100. I would be upset if it is 97. Mm. If you've called yourself 100 gay men who care and you are 97, yeah. mm, mm, no, not what for me. Three of them give twice. Then it's 97 who care and three who really care. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it'd be 90. 100-ish, some of whom care more than others. Okay. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's, what I would, that's what I would call it. It's just not pithy. Yeah, it is not pithy uh, enough. Um, anyway, but the reason why I, this story jumped out at me is, um, you know, essentially this is a story of um, a bunch of gay men uh, donating 10 grand to a uh, LGBT uh, theater group. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 10 grand for a small theater group is huge. It's massive. You know, yeah, big time. It can help make a production, seal the deal, make it happen. That's booking the venue space. I mean, for a run. 10 grand, if they own the theater, that's what keeps the lights on. That's what repairs the boiler. Like, that's that's what lets them pass the health inspections. So they can stay open for business. Like, for a yeah. theater, like, 10 grand is a lot of money. Well, I mean, running a theater is a lot of money. So, I mean, yeah. most of them operate right on the edge of closing down. So, this is this is a big donation. So what the idea behind this, and this is really what struck me with the the 100 Gay Man Who Cares, and people may be familiar with other 100 blah, blah, blah groups. Um, Essentially, they get 100 people who every uh, quarter, so was that three months, donate 100 bucks. That's like 50 bucks biweekly or 25 bucks a week. And um, then once every three months, they have this big old massive check of 10 grand that they're able to donate in a one-off to an organization. Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked in nonprofits, and if somebody handed us with a 10 grand check, I could do something big with that. This idea jumped out of me, and I was, I was really interested uh, by it. But let's move on. There was an interesting commitment out of the, a number of UK theatres, mm-hmm. uh, such as the Royal Court, the Oxford Playhouse and the Royal Exchange and Contact Theatre. Now, these are massive theatres in the West End in London and uh, the Royal Exchange is uh, one of the big ones in Manchester. And what they've done is they've signed a a declaration as Mm theatres, essentially saying that if a theatrical production has a role that is identified as trans or non-binary, then the person acting in that role, and this is the shocker, mm. will be trans or non-binary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So essentially they're saying, look, you know, the, the, the world of theater has a million different roles yeah. for cisgendered men and cisgendered women. And there are yeah. fewer available for folks who are uh, trans-identified. And uh, we're committing to only you know, 
position those with folks who identify as trans and non-binary. What do you think about that, Seb? Well, I mean, there's going to be people who have sort of a, you know, they took our gerbs kind of a reaction to this. But like, as you say, there, there's, except for a lot of more modern productions, there's just not a lot of instances of this. So, I mean, it doesn't really affect that much of theater. Um, so I, sort of like uh, somebody did the analysis of um, the Alabama trans athletes law and they found that it affects a total number of zero professional athletes but it's still worth fighting for because of the meaning behind it and mm. i think if you're looking at british theater british theater is ongoing it's an ongoing production you know it's not like canada where your average local theater they're going to do greece and they're going to do much ado about nothing and then they're going to do i don't know the mikado like they they regular new plays experimental playwrights cutting edge like that is an ongoing thing in England. So there's gonna be these, you know, new roles for like trans people, gender neutral people. And it's not gonna be that much, but when it does happen, I think, yeah, sure. I think it's very relevant. Now, there is something, we talked about this before the show that like England also has a history of drag, especially with the pantos. And I think that's yeah. a different category. I think well, pantomime, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. pantomimes. I, I think that is a little bit more open door. So when you have uh, roles that are traditionally done in drag in the pantos, it might just be a little bit more open. Like if you can get Patrick Stewart to play the ugly stepsister. I'm pretty sure Patrick Stewart has done panto drag. I, I would be step- amazed if he hasn't. I, yeah. But, you know, if, if you get a trans woman or a trans man who wants to do that role and they're, they're, uh, uh, sufficiently camp. Well, the the um, difference is in pantomime, those roles are a caricature. They're a caricature. You know, they're, they're, not, um, they're not characters that identify as, you know, a, a, you know, trans, but rather this sort of, generally it's like Beauty and the Beast or, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's these sort of tales of Aladdin has, uh, you know, has one. And there are these characters that are sort of over the top, overly dramatic, really designed to engage the audience, make the kids laugh, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which they is very different from trans roles. They do that in opera as well, that it has more to do with like the vocal range, but I've also seen operas where they get women to play men and they're always like these horrible caricatures of masculinity. It goes both ways. Uh, mostly, uh, men doing female drag but still like those roles i think the doors being flung open i think that's great but yeah in general i think this is this is a fine policy um i don't think it's going to come up super often when it does come up i think it's important you know what jumped out at me is i mean i am i am british i was born and raised there and, and there is a distinct role that british theater plays in British acting. So yeah. for example, Dame Judi Dench, yeah. everyone knows Judi Dench. Everyone knows she Judy. is not a movie actor. When asked, she said, I am not a movie actor. Yes. yes. I am a Shakespearean actor yes. who has done movies. Yes. And same for David Tennant. There is an ilk of actors in Britain who live on the stage, yeah. who live in the West End. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they do TV Sometimes they get a break and they do a, you know, a big movie, but they're at their core. They are actors at the stage. Mm-hmm. But and- the reason why I bring this up is because British theater is very, very often. It's the theater. 
it's it's also the 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 uh, open door into British television, yeah, and into British period dramas mm-hmm. and into BBC productions that get exported globally. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be a movie a movie star who is British, yeah. you start in theatre. Yes, and what this rule means, this new uh, commitment by these British theatres, is that these trans and non-binary actors are going to catch a break. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where they would not have been able to get access to these roles because they're competing against every cis person in the market. Uh, now they can build their resumes. They can build their repertoire. They can be seen by talent scouts for TV shows and, and start to, you know, you increase representation in more uh, publicly consumed media like television and movies because it's it's sort of that uh, step in the ladder that has been missing for so long. So I think this is great for British television, British movie making, because this little decision, this small decision by four or five movie theatres, yep. um, you know, sorry, not movie theatres, by four or five theatres yep. has opened the door to these folks having a, a very hopeful and viable future. Well, we're going to jump to a couple of songs. This is Calling for an Angel by Kristen Whitcoe, followed by Alberta by Harry Hanna. We'll be back just after this.
Oh, Alberta, Alberta Girl, I got you on my mind I spend my days just thinking about old times You held me close so gracefully Yeah, I was yours and you were mine Oh, Alberta girl, you had me howling at the moon that night My name is Dick Smith. My name is Sebastian. Now, an interesting story. We talked about, um, and I think it was the, was it like the Waterloo Catholic District School Board? The one that, um, you know, had, or they, maybe it was the London District Catholic District School Board. I forget which one it was. But they decided no pride flag. And then they made their own pride flag, which was 
the worst. And then this year they've announced, you know what, we're actually going to fly, you know, the actual globally recognized pride flag. The standard one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the OG, the, the, yeah, yeah. the original. <laughs> um, well, it seems like Catholic school boards around Ontario, because Ontario has uh, a bit of a four-way system when it comes to education. You've, you've outlined some of that in the past. The Catholic system has, uh, in other places, followed this lead. So in Ottawa, the Ottawa Catholic School Board voted nine to one in favor of raising the pride flag flag during the month of June um, at the Ottawa Board's Catholic Education Center. So I'm not sure if it includes um, uh, flagpoles elsewhere. I think they actually costed it. And to install an additional flagpole at every school will be like 230 grand. Um, And, you know, as an LGBT person in Ottawa, um, I'm okay with that. If there's a decision between paying 230 grand to put some poles in front of all the schools Mm -hmm. or just have it at like the Catholic school board HQ, Mm -hmm. you know, that makes sense. It makes sense to me. You have a budget. It makes more sense than inventing your own flag. You know what I mean? The only thing in this story so far that is putting a question mark over my head is do they know that Pride Month in Ottawa is August? Yeah, this is what frustrates me as well, that I think they should be local to where they are, but I think they they learn, they lean a lot towards the curricula that is universally available. So sort of the North American standard for Pride Month is, is June. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I think that's also where it's at. Niagara Catholic District School Board also will be raising the flag at the Catholic Education Center and the schools from June 1st to 6th. Now they actually have the polls at their schools, so they will be raising them at their their, their schools. But what jumps out at me is, you know, this is great. I think this is bringing the Catholic school system, you know, it's it's not launching them forward into the future, it's dragging them forward to where the public school system, the secular system was, five ten years ago uh, i i would say that they've just achieved 2003 well i wanted to mention a couple of prides edmonton pride will be taking their pride month online their pride falls in june i know we've talked about this in the past but my favorite pride events like i'm i am for pride on paper but i myself don't enjoy going because most pride events i don't know i'm just not really interested except weird events i love weird pride events my top two favorites that I've ever been to, one was a curated exhibit on the history of LGBT uh, programmers in the video game industry. And I went to another thing, which was how to make your own sauerkraut. And that was a pride event. And it was supposed to be like promoting health. It was from like a, a queer health center. And it was like, because fermented foods are good for your gut. So it was just trying to get people into home fermentation. Um, it was really a weird event and weird people that I would not normally meet showed up and it was, it was great. It was very memorable and very interesting. And that's the kind of thing that I think pride really should be built on. Not that I don't like, you know, the main stage where Cindy Lauper disappoints you by playing jazz instead of her 80s. That did happen. That did, yeah. I was very disappointed. Yeah. yeah. That kind of stuff can happen. You know, the drag shows can happen, the parades, uh, 
to be fair, though, even as a small child, I was bored by parades. So parades are just not for me. So I like going to these weird side events because that's where all the cool stuff happens, you know, in my so opinion. The last, the last story or two I want to touch on is um, from uh, the CBC, Saskatchewan. Right. And it was by, uh, they, they interviewed Nephila Batter Crafts in Saskatoon. And uh, Shala Newfield, who is a jewelry maker in Saskatoon, okay. was essentially making the case that LGBT folks in their communities should not back rainbow capitalism or pink washing or uh, rainbow washing or pride washing, essentially like uh, an iPhone case with a rainbow sticker on it. Or, as I mentioned last week, uh, Converse shoes with a cool pattern on it. Yep. You know, these are big multinationals, you know, they make bucket loads of money and they're making money off lgbt folks just by sticking a rainbow on on the product they're already making and i think a lot of her point was like look if you want to support the lgbt community buy things that are locally made by local lgbt people you know and it's that supporting local business idea um you know that's a, that's a take that i didn't bring to the conversation last week i still might buy those converse shoes oh my god <laughs> Because I think they're pretty cool. But what do you think about this pushback from, from local small business against that sort of big market rainbow capitalism? Well, I mean, I am very much into old school NDP. I like supporting small business, local business, uh, uh, collective bargaining, farmers. Like I'm in that sort of like, I, if I were to identify politically, I would say labor left except labor left doesn't really exist in Canada anymore. But anyway, um, so this is actually, I love this take. I think this is perfect. Um, major corporations are going to try to sell you stuff because that's what they do. It's their business model. I'm not going to fault a bird for flying, you know? Mm -hmm. But when the option is available, strongly prefer local. And I love the fact that the message is not, you shouldn't buy from the corporations, but that you should prefer local. Because sometimes local doesn't have what you're looking for. Like, I'm gluten intolerant. Your partner hates anything that is a vegetable. So <laughs> that's <so> true. <laughs> so getting, you know, feeding the two of us is, is, at the same time is kind of complicated. We do tend to prefer local because you're, you're going to get like your local Vietnamese place that we can both eat at, for example. Um, so, I mean, there's that, you know, if McDonald's somehow came out with uh, a hamburger that is a meat patty with a meat on the inside and then meat instead of condiments and then a meat bun. Oh, like that, 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 that bypass threat from KFC. Oh, like, the double decker. Yeah. The double decker. I <laughs> had one of those. Yeah. yeah. But still, like if they made something like that, that both of us could eat and it was from McDonald's, we'd probably get that. Uh, because of lack of other options, you know, if we wanted to have dinner together. But I mean, there's always local, you know, usually we end up settling on shawarma. But still, like the idea of when possible, prefer local, I think that is a much better message. Because, I mean, first of all, it's not hostile. <laughs> it, it, it lacks that angry tone that the, as you called the alphabet mafia earlier, can sometimes have. Uh, and it also does have that that message of, you know, support when possible, prefer when possible, and local because, you know, they're your local, you're keeping people, you know, open for business. Uh, local businesses are more capable to cater. They're more mm. capable to customize or specialize. 
so you you should do that you know whenever possible you should prefer local i really strongly like this message a lot well our last story is a bit of an update we'd mentioned that the someone had taken the liberal government to the human rights court over the blood ban and the human rights commission had uh, essentially found that there was grounds for an investigation and they'd kicked it over to the canadian human rights tribunal uh, which is the the sort of uh, semi-judicial body um, that would be able to investigate and then decide but the liberal government has taken the extreme step of kicking that decision for making it into uh, an investigation by the tribunal over to the federal courts. So now the federal courts will be deciding whether or not the commission was correct in uh, in essentially saying there's there's uh, some substance there that to be able to to investigate. So this is a, this is an extreme step by the liberal yeah. government, um, and it uh, and it now puts this case out of the human rights tribunal's hands and into the federal court's hands. So we'll see how uh, this story continues to progress. We'll be monitoring it to keep folks up to date. You know what? Now I mention it. I think there was one story that we may have time for and that's about the ignobels do you want to run with yes, that one i love the ignobels uh, the ignobels are they're like the nobel prize except they are for science that makes you think and then makes you laugh so my favorite one from last year the ignobel for biology was somebody figured out how does the soft tissue of a rectum allow wombats to produce cubic poops and they actually figured out the mathematics of that this year, the Ig Nobel for Economics was by Christopher Watkins and all. That's Watkin, not Walkin, as in the actor. And they discovered that there is a correlation between the Gini coefficient, so that is the ratio between the lowest income earners and the highest income earners in a country, versus how important open mouth kissing is considered to be during the late stages of dating. Now, they distinguished during hookups and short-term courtship, uh, there's no relationship. It's only long-term relationship, especially when you're thinking about like marriage or something like that. So like the three plus uh, year era, they actually found that um, longer relationships, open mouth kissing becomes more important, the greater the, the Gini coefficient for that nation is. And what really got me, if you know your statistics, they had an R value of 0.67, which is just unheard of in the social sciences. This is a very strong correlation. So really weird. And they tested it against a bunch of other stuff. It just popped out. Really weird. So time. I think just for, for those who maybe aren't familiar with the Gini coefficient, you know, a lot of people describe that as what is the floor worker earning versus the CEO. Yeah. And that, that pay gap. So you're yeah. telling me that the bigger that difference in pay, yeah. the more important open mouth kissing is Yes. Uh, if, you know, for, for late stage relationships. Yes. And, and they also compared it to a bunch of stuff. Turns out frequency of hugging, no effect. Uh, how good they are at sex, no effect. Handholding, no effect. Uh, there, is, there is no relationship between the Gini coefficient and how good they are as conversationalists. They studied this, no effect. Just open mouth kissing. And it has a, a correlation of 0.67. 
Well, now we know, as we keep monitoring economic news in Canada, <laughs> if that Gini coefficient goes up or down, we'll be able to let everyone know whether or not they need more or less open-mouth kissing uh, <laughs> to, to stay with the norm. We're playing out with Daryl Don't Need to Know by Claire Whitehead's band. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. I made the food. I tidied up. Despite my leaving, hope that's enough. He won't be happy, but he never is. When I get back, won't hear the end of it. But that's all I know. That's how it goes. Except seldom times, one little friend.